Do you love anime, gaming, movies, and discovering how your favorite pop culture affects everything you do? Then join us on Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. Every week you can listen in while we break down the latest pop culture news and dish on what new releases we can't get enough of. Whether you love movies, I'm going to tell you all about the uh, hopeful 4K re-release of Tron Legacy that happens. (laughs) (laughs) I'm right there with you. Or music. The music in this show is absolutely incredible. Or anime. And under this mask is another mask. (laughs) (laughs) You can discover your new favorites right here on The Anime Effect. Listen every Friday, wherever you get your podcast, and watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or on the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. Hello and welcome to the Podcast Hour. I'm Richard Scott and each week I listen to loads of stuff and share the best of it with you. Today, Bubble. It's a comedy about living under a corporate-controlled dome. Also, what's it like to fall overboard when nobody notices? I kept, I was screaming at them going, hey, 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 you're going to turn around, you're going to turn around, they get, the boat's going to turn around, someone's seen you. And they just kept going until suddenly the lights disappeared and it was pitch black bucketing with rain and I was in the middle of the ocean and I knew they were not turning around. Plus little tiny tell short stories about the small things that have changed the course of history like a cartoon rabbit that isn't called Bugs. At age 16, Disney forged his own birth certificate to enlist in the Red Cross during World War One. He drove an ambulance around France, an ambulance he decorated with his own patriotic cartoons. And finally, Zigzag's a story of personal change with two smart tech journos changing jobs and navigating their way through some big questions about digital life, like what is blockchain and how does it work? That's all coming up, and next time you hear something good, let me know. Pods at radionz.co.nz is the email address. On Twitter, we're at RNZ Podcast Hour, and I'll be featuring as many of your recommendations as I can on future shows. Bubble imagines what life would be like inside a giant enclosed dome powered by the gig economy. It's a place where everyone seems to either be building their own app or working on somebody else's. Oh, and there are monsters too. And just a warning, brace yourself for a sudden, loud and vivid audio intrusion in about uh, 104 seconds time, especially if you're listening on headphones. This is all happening now but it's happening someplace else. In a public park at the crack of dawn, Morgan Kay is out for her daily run. She's wearing a tattered t-shirt, hideous dayglow fanny pack, and a look that says, hey, maybe don't try and talk to me while I'm jogging, okay? She pops in earbuds and begins to run across her picturesque urban paradise underneath a beautiful blue sky. Guys with huge lumberjack beards and women dressed like 80s breakdancers all brunch and vape and walk shelter dogs and have two loud conversations. 
like this. This new cleanse is super bomb. I can eat anything I want to between 1.40 and 1.55 a.m. The rest of the day, I just inhale a series of steams. I'm just so much more present since I deleted Twitter and Facebook from my phone. It's giving me more time to just exist, you know? You guys, documentaries. I cannot get enough freaking documentaries right now. Have you seen the one about food? Activated charcoal is actually like the best. Morgan turns a corner and is flanked by another jogger. Hey, nice fanny pack. Did you know that um, fanny is actually what British people call the lady privates? <laughs> this is Chad, a man who clearly just read a how-to on a pickup artist subreddit titled How to Talk to a Woman Who is Wearing Headphones. Going to wager a guess and say he's also super into Bitcoin, too. Sorry, can't hear you. I have earbuds in. Oh, we'll just take them out. Uh, these actually don't come out. It's inconvenient, but the plus side is that I don't have to hear strangers' terrible vagina jokes. Hey, wait up. Um, I, I was just thinking it'd be fun to talk while we were jogging. Before Chad can finish his sentence, a reptilian monster erupts out of nowhere and latches onto his face. It's about the size of a monkey and has long, bat-like wings. Oh, this'll be fun. Morgan tears open her fanny pack and produces a dagger made of bone. She shoulder checks the creature off of the jogger, then dodges its teeth, claws, and tail, getting in a shank with her dagger after every dodge. She catches it under the chin and it slumps over, dead. Hey, I want, I want to say thank you. And um, you should really let me take your hot monster killing butt to brunch, because I know this really great little place that's not a total scene on the weekend. Sorry, I had a power bar before I left the house. Oh, wait, I knocked you out. Oh, whatever. She lies on her back and looks at the sky. A billboard reads, Welcome to Fairhaven. The sky flickers and flashes. It's being projected on a giant screen. Through the defective panel, Morgan can see the dark red sky outside her perfect bubble. The defective screen flashes back on. Blue sky again. Bubble. Episode 1. Hunters. Written by Jordan Morris. Later, in Morgan's bathroom, the creature is strung up over the tub. She's skinning it and letting its orangish blood drip into a bucket. Her roommate, Annie, lazily watches while eating a breakfast burrito. Annie is the kind of person who is used to waking up in piles of things. Laundry, people, whatever. Thanks for getting this. I didn't think you were going to. No sweat. I mean, what kind of roommate would I be if I didn't provide you the grease you need to destroy your hangover? Mm -hmm. It's doing that thing where the cheese is all in one big deposit. It should be spread out more over the length of the burrito, but, but that's not your fault. Uh, yeah, well, I could have mentioned it to them to make sure to distribute the cheese. Yeah, I guess you could have. Hey, make sure to clean the tub. I might actually need to shower today. Oh, don't give me that. You've been wearing the same pair of track pants since Tuesday. I mean, they still have the size sticker on the leg. Yeah, I do. Well, still, I was thinking today might be the day. Okay, I'll clean the bathroom. You find some of your junkies and pawn this off on them. Okay, first of all, don't call my customers junkies. They're simple scumbags. Second, this stuff needs to undergo sophisticated processing before it can get those scumbags properly 
up without killing them. Uh, my apologies to the scumbag community. And, uh, and to you, my brilliant hustle genius of a roommate, the best thing I ever got off Craigslist. Oh, shucks. I know that death struggles are easier for you than feelings, so I really appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's still alive! Ah! Kill it! I don't have any weapons! Get it with the showerhead! <laughs> ah! Shit. My burrito got some gunk on it. Don't eat it. I wasn't going to. I don't believe you. A hip cocktail bar. Mitch Murray, a man who tucks in his shirt three times a year, sidles up to a well-dressed businesswoman. Man, I love this place. After a long day, these cocktails are very necessary. Oh, what do you spend your long days doing? Right now? Just like... Lots of projects, mostly in the app space, disrupting, social media. It's kind of where everything is going these days. Couldn't agree more. It's 2018 and the internet's never been bigger. 100%. I just want whatever I'm doing to make people's lives better, whether it's in the app space or the poetry space or some other space that we haven't even thought of yet, like robot maids. Oh, the bartender's coming. Uh, Let me grab you something. Hey, uh, you the Postmates guy? Great, here's the order. Oh, make sure those assholes see that we included the extra Parmesan this time. I don't need them calling here. Driving food around for Postmates, huh? Technically in the app space. You got me there. Hey, after I drop this off, I can come back and buy a drink. Mm, please don't. Okay. Well, have a pleasant evening, ma'am. In a ritzy neighborhood, Mitch climbs a flight of stairs up to a beautiful brownstone. Chad, the jogger from earlier, answers the door. I know, I'm mad this dipshit has a nice house, too. On the plus side, he's got a black eye where Morgan decked him. Oh, Postmates, what's up, bro? Hey, do you mind sticking around just so I can make sure that they included the extra Parmesan? Hey, guys, the food's here. Everybody eat up, even if you're on a cleanse, okay? Because you're going to need your strength for later. Trust me. Hey, wait a second. Holy shit. You're Mitch Murray, right? It's Chad Donaldson, bro. We both went to Fairhaven U. Oh, yeah. Hey, hey, buddy. Hey, man. Hey, everybody. Listen up. This fly m- right here, she used to make a cocktail out of Dayquil and Miller High Life and serve it out of a kiddie pool on his balcony. <laughs> no, 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 that wasn't that wasn't me, guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was. No, no, I promise you that you're thinking of somebody else. Well, well then what did you do? I had some land parties. Like, some what? Uh, a land party. Like where everyone hooks up their computers in the same room to play games. Oh. And I had a little mini fridge, so we had sodas and cold Snickers and stuff. Did you ever come to one of those? No. No, I didn't. I, did. I would not come to those. Well, <laughs> maybe you did, and you just forgot it. Awkward Hunters from Bubble, written by Jordan Morris. The English writer and presenter Ollie Mann's still only in his 30s, but he's already a seasoned veteran of the UK podcasting scene. Way back in podcasting's ancient history, as far back as 2007, he started making Answer Me This with his uni mate Helen Zaltzman. You might have heard Helen being interviewed by Kim Hill recently about her popular podcast The Illusionist. Since then, Answer Me This has racked up 360-odd episodes, answering its listeners' sometimes fairly offbeat questions in a light and humorous style. 
A few years back, Ollie Mann launched his own podcast called The Modern Man. Two ends in man, like his surname, it's a magazine-style show with a longer interview bookended by chats with regular contributors about sex and the latest trends. His previous interview subjects include a rogue trader, a butler to the world's super-rich, hackers and gambling addicts. This is all about being lost at sea. When was the last time you took a holiday with your friends? As you get older, it gets harder, doesn't it? I've a couple of mates from school that I only see around Christmas, and basically we have to diarise that a year in advance. Uh, Well, South African Brett Archibald was a high-flying global executive. Living in London, though, meant he didn't often get to see his school friends. So once a year, he and his mates would fly in from wherever they'd ended up working in the world, New York, Hong Kong... Cape Town, and they'd meet up in some exotic location for a boys' trip, usually involving boats, because growing up in Durban, they'd all been surfers in their youth. They wanted to relive their teenage years. And in 2013, Brett and his friends turned 50. So for the big 5-0, they decided to head to the Mentawi Islands in Indonesia, hire a boat, and surf the wildest waves in the world. But first, they had to get there. We all flew into a place, into the the capital of Indonesia called Jakarta. Got stuffed into a little roadside pub, 42 degrees heat, Indonesia. Eventually got on the boat. They took us to the boat at about 4 p.m. Unpacked all our gear, waiting to set sail. And we set sail. And it was as we went down the river into the ocean, the storm came. Five other boats had headed out that that uh, evening. Four of them went back. They were all skippered by international skippers. They realized the storm was going to be too severe. And our boat just kept going because the skipper spoke no English. It was pigged in English, broken English. He called us all Mr. Brett, Mr. Mark, Mr. John. And that was his, his summation of English. You know, he knew the word Mr. and he worked out <laughs> your name. And that was it. We didn't get a safety briefing. I actually did my own little circuit to find out where the life jackets were. They were locked in a cupboard in the front of the boat, in the front part of the bow, locked in a cupboard. And I should have, I mean, I should have insisted on a whole lot of things. We all should have, but we didn't, you know. We were so relaxed with it. We'd, of the ten crossings we'd done, five trips I'd done, we, we um, had seen some really rough seas, and we'd also had it, like sailing on on hard hard park lake you know it's just whew, calm as flat as a, as a as a as a duck pond but this one wasn't one of those one of the worst storms in 35 years in that part of the world and it just came out of nowhere just a proper tropical thunderstorm what did that feel like when you're on the boat horrific horrific we had a really good time sitting on the deck while we sailed down the river into the ocean we ended up having takeout pizza don't eat takeout pizza in Indonesia ever. You have nasi goreng or noodles, but not takeout pizza. These pizzas, I, I'll never forget it. I still can see those pizzas. I can still smell them. They were calzoni. When they cut them open, the smell. And I remember saying to my mates, this is water buffalo and has been out in the sun for many days. But anyway, we were so hungry. My well, mate you were, next you were to on me, the ocean by the time you opened the pizza. Where you yeah, well, you we'd no actually choice. started yeah. eating as we were setting sail down yeah. the river. You can't change your mind. And go can't change. The there's nothing place. else to get and there's no other food. So we ate it, you know. And, and as we hit the ocean, we actually realized, I mean, this, this sea was starting to get a bit rough. But the, the, the storm really hit around about 1 p.m. And that's actually, that, the storm woke me up and my cabin mate because our boat was literally 
smashing into the waves. It was just lifting up in the bow, bang, and that woke me up, and I went, whoa. And I said to my, my cabin mate, wow, we're in for a rough ride, and he started laughing, and I needed to go to the bathroom, and I climbed up this little ladder to go and was greeted by this big friend of mine who had smashed half this pizza, being violently ill into his toiletry bag. He'd just emptied because he was locked in a room. The door jammed, hmm. and another mate had bust the door open, and there he was, and I just said, I've got to get to the bathroom before him, and I just gapped it down the passage into the bathroom. So do you think you were seasick as well, or do you think you had food poisoning? Or both? Well, I definitely, we definitely know, because six of the nine of us ended up violently, violently ill. And interestingly, the three that weren't, weren't ill were the three that shared the first pizza that was actually looked fresh and had been made there and then, whereas the six of us that shared the other two were every single one of us was sick. Mm, Our okay. boat was carnage. I mean, there were guys being ill everywhere, in the bathrooms, up on the deck, being sick over the railing. And this is one in the morning? And so, well, this, by this stage, it's 2 o'clock. I've been on the toilet for an hour. I actually went out, outside to get some fresh air to find my mate, Hadn't even tried to make the, the bathroom. He just, he was lying at the back of the boat, water washing over him, just being ill into a, actually into a plastic salad bowl. He'd grabbed a salad bowl on the way through and just was being so sick. I got him to the top deck because down there was the, the smell of diesel fumes, etc. And we got him up, him and I were sitting at the top and that's when Mark came to say, how are you guys doing? And then I went to the skipper's cabin and he told me we now had 14 hours or nine hours before we got to our destination. We were meant to be there at 4.30 a.m. in the water surfing by 5. I was like, what is going on here? Perhaps we should have put our foot down. But we, you know, you've got to realize we, the boat was just mayhem, mayhem. Six guys being so sick, sliding all over the place, falling around, hanging on to whatever you could. And it was, it was pure hell. That's all, the only way I can describe it. Pure hell. What happened next? I walked to the railing, just getting some fresh air in my face, pouring with rain. I got really cold. I put a T-shirt on. I'm standing there thinking, oh, I feel horrible, and I vomit. One horrible one, one second one, and one third one. And I remember the third time I vomited, I thought, I just got this pain up my spine into the back of my head. Hmm. And I thought, if I vomit like that again, I'm going to black out. And the next thing... I was in a dream. I was a kid. I was in a washing machine. I was being tumbled around. I thought, what a cool experience. Like, why do we do this as kids? Like, in a washing machine, tumbling around, all this foam. And then my dream morphed from me being in a washing machine to my friends flicking water on my face saying, wake up, Brett, we're there. Let's go surfing. And I remember shouting them, don't wet my bed. I've got no portholes. My linen's going to be all damp and wet for the rest of the trip. And I wiped the water from my eyes. And I looked up and I was in the middle of the ocean and my boat was 100 metres in front of me. Just I saw the lights burning. I saw Benoit lying there. I saw the little uh, guard who was meant to be on night duty, fast asleep. And you saw him drifting off into the distance. And I just saw them sail away until I couldn't see them anymore. I was screaming at them, going, hey, 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 you're going to turn around, you're going to turn around, they get, the boat's going to turn around, someone's seen you. And they just kept going until suddenly the lights disappeared and it was pitch black, bucketing with rain, and I was in the middle of the ocean and I knew they were not turning around. What were you wearing? A pair of shorts and a T-shirt. 
That was it. Nothing. No, no life floating device. Nothing. And I, 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 I still, four years later, I can tell you, I knew at that moment I was dead. I just didn't know how I was going to die or when. That was the only question in my mind. How, how do I die? And said all my goodbyes, apologized to my family. Just knew I was going to, how long would this last? How long does it take? Am I going to get eaten by a shark? I'm going to drown. I'm going to sink to the bottom. What's going to happen? What did that feel like? Horrific. There is no, there are no words. The horror of that moment, there is no word to describe it. I just watched this boat sail away, pitch black, waves just pushing me under, swallowed and coughed and spluttered, trying to get my head up, and I was just like, how do I die? How long is this going to take? There must have been a part of you, though, that thought, they'll see I'm not on the boat, and they'll turn around and get me. I knew without a shadow of a doubt my friends would come back for me. And that was so, it was so quick. Started counting my pulse, 1,001, 1,002 times about 15 I mean, times about four to, to 1,015 times about four. All I remember, my pulse was over 170 beats a minute. I, I have no idea why I did this, but I went, that's adrenaline. The moment the adrenaline runs out, you're going to sink to the bottom. You have to calm down. In the sea, I'm just treading water. I close my eyes, start doing this meditation, breathing exercises in the sea. Waves are pushing me under. I'm not thinking about anything of that. I just It was incredible how quickly I got my heart rate down. Did that make a... And then made a massive difference because now I'm calm. I'm thinking, okay, I knew my boys would come back for me. Now, how long is it going to take them to turn around and how are they going to find you? So those two statements, of course, they sound mutually exclusive, but they aren't, are they? You can know that you're going to die and know that your friends are going to come back and get you. But of course, by then you may be dead. Well, exactly. Will they be on time? And then I remember thinking, I remember straight away, I said, what, I, I actually asked, I'm talking to myself, I asked myself, what did that skipper say? He said, nine hours, nine hours, nine and a half hours, worst case scenario, work out a worst case scenario. So let's say it's 10 hours, they get there to the other side, they don't realize all the way through the night, they get to the other side, that'll be 10 o'clock in the morning, they'll turn around, they'll set sail straight back, they'll come at full speed, so it'll be less than half the time, so worst case scenario, 14 hours. How are you going to stay alive for 14 hours? And, you know, it's so, our minds, human being mind, is such an incredible machine. It, it was going in a million, it was like a computer. Brr, the one thing, plastic bags. The Indonesian sea is actually quite filthy. They throw everything in the water. We've seen a fridge before. We nearly hit a fridge on, in our boat. I'm thinking, I've got to find a fridge because it floats. I can climb in the mm. fridge. It must have beer in it too. I mean, I've got a very macabre sense of humor. It's got to be beer and I can drink beer and I'll wait and my guys will come back for me. I was convinced I'd find a plastic bag. What can I do? Blow it up, tie a knot in it, put it in my T-shirt. Flotation device. To be clear then, so you have to keep paddling your arms keep and paddling, your legs. I'm swimming. I kicked. I just did a breaststroke. I pulled my arms, kicked my legs. I never did. I never swam to get anywhere. I just swam to keep my head above water, see a wave coming take a breath and go under because at first I was just treading water I couldn't see a wave coming from behind me it would smash down on me push me under I'd cough splutter I found myself swallowing so much water and there is nothing worse than swallowing seawater after mouthful of seawater after mouthful of seawater
And there's so many more twists and turns to that story too, including an encounter with a shark. It's called Lost at Sea and it's from The Modern Man and its host, Ollie Mann, told me what he's looking for when he chooses his interview subject. I think there's a vulnerability, if I'm being perfectly honest, about my favourite guests. I mean, it's, it's a given that anyone who I'm interviewing either does an interesting job or has had an interesting life. Those are basically the two, <laughs> the two areas that we explore. And I suppose, ideally, you have someone who does an interesting job because they've had an interesting life. And so an example of that might be Ben Ryan, who's this chap that I interviewed in Wales. His job is he works with 3D printing and CAD software. So straight away, tick, tick, you know, that's interesting. This is a really burgeoning industry that's going to change the world. But the reason he's in that job is because his own son was born following a series of complications with his birth with half an arm. He was amputated below the elbow. And so he had to innovate 3D printing so that he could print his own son an arm. So, like, straight away you have really on that Venn diagram of kind of interesting job and interesting life, you have the kind of optimum story for us. So there's those guests. And then there are the people who, as I say, maybe on paper don't strike you as as having had the most interesting life. There's a guy who I interviewed recently called Craig Jones, for example, who's an ex-soldier who's now a wildlife photographer. Interesting enough, but on paper you wouldn't necessarily think, well, fascinating. But there was a vulnerability with him. His mother had died when he was a child. He turned to nature because she'd brought him up going to the forest and learning from wild creatures when they didn't have a lot of money and they were living in a council estate in the Midlands. And he essentially now has devoted his life to honouring the way in which his mum brought him up and he credits everything that he's done, including being a sniper in Northern Ireland and the techniques he'd use in the army to a kinship with nature, navigating uh, birds and the avian world and stuff like that. So for me, it's it's either do they have an interesting job? Have they had an interesting life? Preferably both where one feeds into the other. And are they just quite... I mean, I don't want to keep saying vulnerable because obviously some of the people I interview have come through extraordinary things and are now very strong people. But what I mean is there's a chink in the armour. There's something human that you can relate to so that even if you think, I have no interest in this story, I have no interest in this person... And that's the nature of a magazine show. Sometimes you are delivered an episode where you think, well, that's not interesting. You will become interested because the, you're interested in the person. You're interested in reading between the lines. You're wondering what's happening inside their head. And what was the motivation for starting up The Modern Man? Was it the, the fact that there wasn't really anything like it? Was it the fact that you wanted to listen to that kind of show? Yeah, I, I mean, I think for me, I've always just made the kind of show that I want to listen to. And exactly, I, I felt that... In Britain, there weren't independent shows that were doing ambitious one-off documentary subjects on a consistent basis, which is what you hear in the US, of course, all the time. You know, This American Life, Radio Lab, etc. But actually, in the UK, the general rule for podcasts is it's, it's either sort of two people bantering in a room or it's a very specialist subject, you know, whereas I wanted to do a general interest documentary subject some weeks we'd do it in a very storytelling style with music and we'd use different you know actual kind of storytelling techniques that you'd use if you were making a radio documentary other weeks we'd just do it as a straightforward one-on-one conversation or even just one person speaking directly to the listener whatever suits the story the best so there was that and then also to be perfectly honest there was a, a mission for me to try and broaden the way in which the public saw me 
um, because uh, people, if they knew who I was um, back in 2015, would either know me for doing uh, talk radio phone-ins where, you know, it was very much let's talk about immigration or let's talk about Islam or let's talk about prison. Or they would know me for the podcast that I did with Helen Zaltzman, Answer Me This, which I'd been doing since 2007, which was a kind of student in remains, <laughs> a kind of studenty sixth form humour, really fun show, but a show in which serious subjects are treated with a pinch of salt and light subjects are taken seriously, and that's the humour of it. I love making that show and it's really fun, but it's a reflection of who I was really when I was 25, not who I was when I was 35 when I started The Modern Man. And I, I felt at 35 like, OK, I'm about to have a son, I'm about to get married, I've got a mortgage on my house. you know. And, and throughout that first year of the show, all those things did happen. My father died, I lost my job. Various things happened to me that actually meant that I just felt like kind of I'd grown up and I wanted to do a show where I could be serious about serious things and have fun as well. What do you enjoy about podcasting as a medium? Because you've obviously done it for a long time now. What What is it about podcasting? You, you know, you've worked on TV, you've worked in radio. What is it that that gives you that, that those other mediums perhaps can't? I just think it is literally the best medium. I, I, I mean, as you say, I've experimented in different forms. And as I kind of experimented with every different type of it, really, you know, and as a student, I did a bit of student journalism and student drama and student radio. The thing that I liked the most was radio because it was intimate, because you're in people's minds. We've all had that experience where you're driving the car and you're so compelled to what you're listening to on the radio that you suddenly realise you don't know where you're going or, you know, you you can't turn the engine off because you're in a car park or whatever it is. That's the intimacy and the brilliance of radio. And I just feel podcasting takes radio on a gear, really. And the two distinctions I'd say that there are, because obviously it's a very similar medium to radio, but the two distinctions I'd say that there are, are one, the audience has specific, all the audience have specifically chosen to be with you at that moment. And that's different to radio where there's an element of serendipity. You know, it's whatever happens to be on when you're in the kitchen. That doesn't happen with podcasts. People have chosen to spend their time with you out of all of the other potential content that's available in the world. That's an incredible privilege. And it means that they are already sold on you. You don't have to sell yourself to them. They already know that they want to listen to you. They're now trusting you to bring them something interesting and it's your job to deliver that. So that's exhilarating and exciting. And then the other thing is the literal physical intimacy of it. You know, I've already said radio is very intimate. Well, most podcast listeners listen on headphones. So you are literally in their head. You are appended to their ears. And I know from meeting uh, fans of the shows that I do and actually talking to other fans of other podcasts that I'm into that the connection people feel with podcasters, it's like the connection they have with radio hosts, but it's even more intense than that. It's, it's a re- you really feel like the people who like your show like you. And there's less pretense about podcasting than I think any other medium that has any traction. Um, even YouTube videos, because even then, you know, you really are trying to court a click in the first 10 seconds. None of that happens in podcasts. It's just very, very honest. And I feel I say this to my guests as well, many of whom have done other shows. You know, some of my guests, we try and find original guests, but inevitably a lot of them have written books or they've been on TV because they've had interesting lives. And when I'm pitching to them why they should come on my show and tell me their story, I say, well, this is the version that really is the truth. This is the no bullshit version. Ollie Mann of the Modern Man podcast, and you'll find more info about The Lost at Sea episode I played and where to listen to other episodes at rnz.co.nz forward slash podcast hour.
The ABC series Little Tiny tells short stories about small things that have shaped world history, including one very special rabbit. This podcast contains bad language and my reading of history, which some people might disagree with, and that's totally fine. Once upon a time in a dodgy one better in the outskirts of LA, a young animator and his longtime friend together created a cartoon character who would capture the hearts and minds of children across America. It was 1927, and this one little cartoon was about to change things, not just for his creators, but for anyone who might wish upon a star that they could visit the happiest place on Earth. With his iconic big ears and an even bigger heart, he brought smiles and mischief to screens across the country. His name? Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. You know, Oswald, the bunny rabbit. He he rides a horse and plays an accordion and he's the one responsible for all the theme parks, the merchandise, the most annoying song ever written. It's a small world. He started an animation empire. No? Oh. You're listening to Little Tiny, a podcast about the small things that have changed the world. I'm Kara Schlegel, and this episode is The Rabbit. By 1928, a very young Walt Disney was already one of the most successful producers and animators in American history. He was the producer and co-creator of Oswald, the Lucky Rabbit, star of such smash hits as Trolley Troubles and the critically acclaimed Oh, What a Night, in which Oswald is a knight who plays the accordion atop his horse, which then means he accidentally steers his horse off a cliff and into a moat full of crocodiles. Who plays an accordion while riding a horse? Oswald. Ten years earlier, at age 16, Disney forged his own birth certificate to enlist in the Red Cross during World War I. He drove an ambulance around France, an ambulance he decorated with his own patriotic cartoons. Imagine you're at the front lines and you've just been shot. You're bleeding out. This is the end, my friend. Then, in the distance, you see it. It's an ambulance. Your salvation. You think it's an ambulance? Wait, is it a, is it a mirage? Why does it have a picture of a duck on it? Why isn't the duck wearing any pants? The cartoons were so good that he was scouted and he scored his first job drawing for a wartime newspaper called Stars and Stripes. After the war, he and his brother Roy started their own company, the Disney Brothers Cartoon Studios. Together they hired on a team of animators, headed by Oswald's co-creator, Ub Iwerks. 
Oswald was genuinely entertaining, provocative, and overall probably funnier than most other Disney cartoons. Not that that's very hard. I mean, Prince Charming isn't exactly a barrel of laughs. Oswald was more like if you fused Bugs Bunny and Wile E. Coyote into one character and then gave him an accordion for some reason. So when they pitched the idea to Universal, the studio loved it and backed Disney in the creation of all Oswald cartoons. Disney and his friend Iwerks had created a sensation. A character who was bringing truckloads of money into Universal Studios as the Great Depression loomed. But being young and idealistic and stupid, they signed the first contract they were handed, a shitty deal where Universal got 80% of the cut. When Disney realised his lucky rabbit was responsible for much of Universal's profit, he went to his boss, Charles Mintz, to ask for a little more cash. Considering they were in the infancy of a global financial crisis and the entire production crew were paid out of that measly 20% share, it seems reasonable to assume Mintz would comply. Unless, you know, he was Satan. (laughs) Turns out Charles Mintz was probably Satan. Not only did he tell Disney to go jump, he'd also gone behind Disney's back to steal most of his animators by contracting them directly to Universal. Disney threatened to walk and to take his lucky rabbit with him, but Cruella de Mintz informed him that he couldn't. Universal owned Oswald the Lucky Rabbit and his little accordion too. (laughs) Disney was left with a choice. Either abandon Oswald the Lucky Rabbit, who had so far been his only big success, or sell his soul to Satan. At the 11th hour, after hacking through the contracts, Iwerks rode in on his white horse to help Disney escape Universal Studios and defeat Mintz. And defeat him, they did. They decided to go it alone, building up their own studio to eclipse Universal. But they had no money. What they needed was a new character, one that could charm audiences away from Oswald. What they created was an icon. An icon who bore a remarkable resemblance to a very famous rabbit, but who was a little more wholesome and a little less likely to let his horse get eaten by crocodiles. His name was Oswald the Lu- Oh, sorry. His name was Mickey Mouse. Eventually, Disney's former staff escaped Universal's clutches as well. They must have had a lot of pent-up aggression because when they joined Warner Brothers, they made cartoons about animals trying to kill each other incessantly. As for Oswald the Lucky Rabbit, his luck ran out. Even when Universal gave him a makeover with white gloves, a cute rounded face and a little pair of red pants, they couldn't save him from obscurity. By the 40s, Oswald was dead. I I mean, not literally. He's a cartoon character. He can't really die, guys. Come on. In 2006, 
Walt Disney Studios reanimated Oswald's corpse, buying him back from the enemy. Now you can play him in a video game and kick Mickey's butt, which I reckon is the happily ever after the lucky rabbit deserves. The ABC's Little Tiny with the Rabbit. There are a couple of other good ones I've enjoyed recently called The Key and the Donut, and that's written and presented by Cara Schlegel, produced by Martin Peralta, script editing by Sophie Townsend, history consultant was Kira Lindsay, and Ian Walker is the show's executive producer. Zigzag tells the story of two people navigating their way through a period of personal change and profound technological upheaval. Manoush Samarodi used to host New York Public Radio's popular tech show Note to Self, but she and producer Jen Point ditched their jobs to find a future for themselves inside an emerging form of journalism powered by the blockchain. And if you start glazing over at words like blockchain, cryptocurrency, Bitcoin and Ethereum then don't worry. The ZigZag team are used to explaining tricky tech concepts. Here they grapple with some of the big questions that potentially obstruct their narrative, like what is blockchain and why should I care? Here are three things that you need to know about blockchain. We're going to build on them, but let's just start with these three things. And actually, let's add some music to get you in the right mood. Oh, I like that guitar. All right, this is good. Okay, here we go. Number one, something you need to know about blockchain. Blockchain is related to something you probably have heard of, Bitcoin. Bitcoin is blockchain's baby. Bitcoin is blockchain's baby. Right, cool. Okay, good. So, got number one, ready for number two. Blockchain is a new way for humans to make deals. Transactions, trading, taking care of business on the blockchain. Right. Yeah, I like that. Okay. And number three, blockchain requires a collective spirit. Think lots of people and computers all working together. All my friends are computers and we're working together on the blockchain. Excellent. Yes. Okay. Right. So quick recap before we move on. We got to keep these three concepts in mind with blockchain. It's related to Bitcoin. It's a new way for humans to make deals with each other and it needs a collective to make it work. Blockchain, Bitcoin, computer, commune for blockchain. A commune. That's an interesting way to look at it. Okay, let's go deeper. Are you ready? Let's combine all three of those ideas and build on them to explain blockchain. Okay, so back to number one. Blockchain and Bitcoin are related. Bitcoin is blockchain's baby. Right, okay, we got that. Hold on a second, guitar man. All the recent headlines are about Bitcoin, this virtual currency or digital money that a lot of people are buying into, and maybe it's creating a bubble. Today we're discussing what else but Bitcoin, which has blown past the $10,000 price. We're asking whether or not this currency really has any longevity. Bitcoin is a speculative bubble which will end in tears. Good expert analysis. Now Jordan Belfort calls Bitcoin a fraud. But the story behind Bitcoin is also the story of blockchain. Remember the 2008 financial crisis? The Dow tumbled more than 500 points. Lehman Brothers, a 158-year-old firm, filed for bankruptcy. The main engine of America's auto industry is in danger of the stalling banking out. system still crippled despite a $350 billion bailout. As costly as this effort may be, 
We know that the cost of a complete collapse of our financial system would be incalculable for families. Governments propping up car manufacturers and banks too big to fail in order to keep the entire U.S. economy from collapsing. It was super scary. And it left a lot of people thinking, like, who is in charge here? And do these people even know what they're doing? I mean, like, come on, are the pillars of our society really that close to toppling just like that? There's got to be a better way. And one anonymous software designer who used the name Satoshi Nakamoto thought he or she had this better way. It was called Bitcoin. Or as Nakamoto described it, a peer-to-peer electronic cash system, basically a digital currency. And on November 1st, 2008, he posted a white paper explaining his idea for Bitcoin. And the way it worked was that it lived on a new technology, a new platform that he called, wait for it, the blockchain. Bitcoin is blockchain's baby. Okay, the key concept with Bitcoin was that you didn't need any inept banks or governments to run it. No one would be in charge. Instead, blocks of data would be replicated on a network of hundreds or thousands of computers, all running special software that they would use to calculate, record, and link every transaction, creating what he called a distributed ledger. So Nakamoto creates Bitcoin. He designs the blockchain to make it possible. Bitcoin is blockchain's baby. Right. Okay. Let's go on. Blockchain, as we've said, is a new way for humans to make deals. Okay, so blockchain can be used to keep track of Bitcoin, but it has other superpowers. It can keep track of all kinds of things, which might really change the way that we humans do business and exchange information with each other. Transactions, trading, taking care of business on the blockchain. I think it helps to hear some examples. So here's me talking to Nick, my bootcamp trainer. After my last set of burpees, we recorded this conversation on his phone. Okay, so you know what Bitcoin is? Yes. Okay, tell me what Bitcoin is. Bitcoin is a cryptocurrency. It's, uh, there's no physical uh, aspect to it. It's, it's just something that's blowing up and everybody's talking about it. And Do you own Bitcoin? I don't. Are you thinking about it? I have thought about it, but I'm not, I'm not, in the, I'm not into it. Okay, not a speculator. Yeah, okay. it's a little too risky for me. All right, so do you know what blockchain is? No. Have you heard the word before? I've heard the words block and chain, but never together. So blockchain is the technology underlying Bitcoin. Um, for Bitcoin to function, it works on the blockchain. And what that is, is it's a software, right? Bitcoin software to connect a network of computers. So no one controls the network of computers. Mm-hmm. Each of the computers have to agree to make a change. Mm-hmm. You couldn't change one and then not have the whole rest of the network see that you made a change. Sure. So the idea being like, there's no bank that's in charge of it. There's no one people who's in charge of it. Okay. But here's what I think is more interesting. Yeah. Let's say um, there was an E. coli outbreak. Okay. Right now they have to go back to each source, like where this lettuce thing happened. Interesting. Yeah, remember. Yeah. Like they'd be like, where'd the farm come from? Who shipped it? Blah, blah, blah. If all of those were connected on right. one long blockchain, right. they'd be able to, they did one test where they could track like these nasty sliced mangoes. It took them seven 
10 days with regular tracking mechanisms, 2.2 seconds if they used a black. <laughs> it's pretty cool, right? Very cool, yeah. So other things that people are talking about is like refugees. Like if they have their, you know, you have to, yeah. if you're about to flee the country, sure. what do you have to get? You have to get yeah, papers paperwork and deeds and, yeah. and all the rest of it. And then what if they're like, that's a forgery. You don't really own that land when you come back but or whatever. But it can be verified instantly. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Verified and right. live in a place away from a government. Wow. So if you ended up in some other country, you would still have a record of your identity, of your land, of whatever else. So it kind of revolutionizes data, right? Because exactly. it takes like humanity out of it almost, like human error. Yes, exactly right. Okay, so all the data from every transaction, whether it's with money or that head of poopy lettuce shipping from a farm, it is visible and trackable and kept secure by many, many techies and their computers. To be sure, it is the opening chapter of blockchain story. It's the prologue. There are lots of questions about how blockchain will actually work in the real world. And we've seen what happened with the web when people moved fast and broke stuff. I'm looking at you, Zuckerberg. Okay, coming up, The Daily Show goes to a blockchain conference, and so do we. Can you use, can you use a word that wasn't invented in the last two years? Can you uh, use... I, I'll try, I'll try. Plus, more about how the blockchain relates to you. Zigzag, produced and presented by Manoush Somarodi and Jen Point. And that's about it from the podcast half for now. Just a reminder, any listening recommendations can be sent to me at pods at radionz.co.nz. But for me, Richard Scott, enjoy the rest of your weekend. I'll be back next week. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.